Hey, it's Eric Newcomer. I'm here with Dead Cat. We've got Tom around and Ophelia Brown is here. She's the founder of Blossom Capital, European Series A fund that just raised $432 million, which is like a huge leap. I think I was looking at my story that I wrote a few months ago. It was like $85 million, 2019, 185 fund two in 2020. And now... We're at 432. So excited. Uh, Very specific number, by the way, 432. <laughs> I know it is. I wondered about how did you get to that number? Did, did you not want to round up to five or <laughs> what happened? Just take every dollar you could get, you know? Yeah, 430 just didn't seem like enough. <laughs> Scraping the barrel, you know? Uh, no, uh, we actually had a hard cap on the fund. Uh, so we were not allowed to raise any more at that point. Um, because of some white. regulation so, or some... No, so when you're raising, you put a fund target in um, and then you negotiate with your LPs the maximum amount you can raise. Um, and unfortunately, we couldn't go any further. So that's why it's very specific. Oh, right. It starts to change the strategy. So if you're an LP and you invest, you don't, you're much more excited about being in a... $400 million fund than a billion dollar fund. Exactly. Potentially. Exactly. Yeah. Glad to have you on. I was writing about you, right? Sort of clearly as this was in the works. What was your takeaway from sort of the fundraising process or what was the pitch to LPs? Like give us a little bit of, you know, the behind the scenes now that it's all, all done and you can talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we actually did the fundraise last summer, which I guess was around the time we were speaking. You you almost leaked it. Well, you did leak it. For, <laughs> I said for I me. thought it was happening. You know, something. I, I'd sent you some slides from our deck. <laughs> um, so uh, you broke the story. But um, no, it was it was actually a, uh, it was a great process. Um, we were very fortunate that uh, the majority of our Fund 1 and Fund 2 LPs came back. And then... We've developed like close relationships with a lot of institutions in the U.S. Um, since we've started. So I think the one thing that uh, LPs have liked is that, you know, our fund three decks is still pretty much our fund one deck in terms of how we see the opportunity in Europe. And each time we come back for a fund, it's just proving out the story. Um, so that's been a pretty consistent uh, message from us from the beginning. Are most of your LPs European-based as well, or who are you drawing from? We started out, um, I think, 60% Europe and 40% US. Um, with this fundraise, we're actually 70% US now. Um, so we were pretty proud to add some of the world's best endowments um, for this fund. Um, we've got pension plan, foundation, etc. So it's a great group of institutions. Was that just a reflection of more U.S.-based investors being interested in, in a European-centric fund? Or did w was European capital looking elsewhere? Or had it, why, why, the, why the shift? Yeah, absolutely. I think your first point is exactly it. I mean, when we, when we went out to raise our fund one in 2018, like no one was really looking at Europe. It was still considered a bit of a backwater, I have yeah, to say. old world, I get it. <laughs> yeah. People yeah. around tech to get that. <laughs> And then, um, I mean, our pitch with Fund One was essentially like there is a lot happening in Europe. It's uh, pretty undiscovered at the early stage, but there is a lot more U.S. growth capital coming in. And we expect that to accelerate 
So when we went back for our fund two, you know, we were already seeing kind of the US funds starting to invest and we had better proof points. And I remember in, at some point in our fund two phase, I actually had an LP saying, we need to add European exposure to, to our portfolio. And I was like, oh my God, no one uttered those <laughs> words. To right. me and fund one. Um, and fund three, I mean, we've really seen the shift. Um, I think all of the proof points are there. And especially the institutions that I mentioned, I mean, they're seeing the European exposure increase from their US managers. And so naturally are looking to add now. LBs have some exposure through the US funds, right? Or I'm curious, I guess the real question is like the Series A positioning in Europe. You know, you came up through Index, you were a principal there, I believe. And then you worked at Local Globe, which is obviously a premier seed fund. Why did you decide? Series A, like that there there needed to be sort of a strong local player when it does feel like the Sequoias of the world are certainly gunning um, for Series A rounds too? Or how did you think about that position yeah. when you started the fund? So it was actually when I was at Local Globe um, and I was doing seed investing in the UK. And I just saw this repeatable pattern that, you know, the most ambitious, talented entrepreneurs would always look to the West Coast to raise capital. And they'd be repeatedly told by, you know, the likes of Sequoia, Grey Dot, Benchmark, et cetera, we don't invest in Europe at the early stage. We don't have the bandwidth and expertise. Like, come back to us at the next round as you've kind of proven it out or accelerating growth in the US. And then they would come back and kind of look at the European landscape. And there just weren't enough funds. And there weren't enough funds that thought like uh, partners did on the West Coast, like, very comfortable and taking risks, could really think ambitiously, had the experience of like scaling technology companies. Um, And in my mind, like why that made, you know, I started out in Europe in 2012 and it was pretty slim pickings at that point in terms of like the number of opportunities. If you fast forward to like 2017, so I think we went from something like 600 seed deals were done in 2012. Fast forward to 2017, like you know, six and a half thousand seed deals were being done that year. So in my mind, it just didn't make sense that there wasn't a great A fund. And I saw a real gap um, in that market. And are all your portfolio companies in Europe? All of them. Yeah. 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 You're restricted to that or you're going to stick to that? No, we're not restricted by any means, but it's a choice. It's like, where do we spend time? Where do we have bandwidth for our founders? Where are we in close proximity? Where do we have the networks and the understanding um, and one thing we've been very focused on specifically from like the network and expertise point of view is the partnership isn't limited to Europe in terms of the, that scope. Like, you know, I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley before this um, and continue right, to spend I saw time. you in Miami not long ago. <laughs> exactly. Um, and Alex, who we added last year from uh, IVP, obviously spent his entire venture career up until now in the Valley. So having that continued West Coast like network and expertise has been really important to us. What's been like the makeup of a, of a successful European, uh, you know, startup at this point? I mean, I cover delivery and or the gig economy. And so I've spent far too much of my time in the last couple of months looking at all of the European-based instant delivery companies, your Gorillas, your Flinks, your... We even had one in our portfolio. We had Deja until Deja, not long ago. now yeah. owned by GoPuff. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that obviously like a super active space. Maybe we can talk a bit about that. But like what's been, you know, what what do you think like kind of kicked off the interest in seed deals there? Um, and like what what highlight startup exits have there been? 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if we talk more broadly, like the the massive exits of recent years um, or the standouts have been the likes of ADN, Spotify, UiPath. Um, and, you know, in the early years, it wasn't so much. It was like gaming. It was like, you know, Supercell um, was kind of the standout. Um, and now I think we have something like over... I mean, the number used to be like 20 unicorns came out of Europe. And now we have like 150 unicorns have come out of Europe and way more exits. Um, And I think the most interesting stat from last year was a third of all seed deals done globally were in Europe, Hmm. which is, you know, fascinating. Because you think how big the continent is. Like, it's not just UK, it's Germany, France, like Switzerland, uh, Sweden, Nordics, etc. Like, Every country is seeing huge amount of growth in terms of its really early ecosystem. Part of what's been interesting about your investing so far is just you've been in two somewhat unusual deals. Or I don't know how the checkout deal was that your first investment, or it was certainly one of your first, right? It was, I think it was our fourth investment. Oh, sorry. It was fourth. It was a it was a series A, <laughs> right? But what so was we were sticking to strategy. <laughs> <laughs> what was the how how big of a round was it? What what were the terms? They're it was there, a two hundred thirty million dollar round at a one point six pre. How did how did you get into that and decide decide to do it? Yeah, I'd actually known about the company for a long time. Guillaume, the founder has my email from 2013 when I cold emailed him when I was at Index hmm. <laughs> asking to speak. Um, he actually had chosen to bootstrap his company. So he didn't talk to any investors until 2018. And uh, I heard that he was considering raising and a good friend of mine, Tarvet Henrinkus, the now chairman of TransferWise, um, I asked for him for an intro to Guillaume. And I went into the meeting with Guillaume thinking that I was pitching him on investing in checkout. And it turned into a meeting to Guillaume pitching me on becoming an LP and Blossom. Um, <laughs> and we just really hit it off. I guess we were both at the beginning of our fundraising journey. Right. Um, and I mean, payments and fintech is a space that I knew very, very well from Index. Um, and his. You were a board observer at Robinhood. Exactly. Yeah. And his story is just, you know absolutely incredible, like very unique. I mean, who in Europe bootstraps their company to a valuation of 1.6 has been now, now never... raising or raised at 40 billion, right? Just raised at 40. Oh. And then the MoonPay was another one that just happened. Another right? Series A. <laughs> Allegedly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the key is that they brand them as Series A's. That's right. Yeah. No, what, what was the story with MoonPay? So MoonPay, another, you know, cold outreach to Ivan um, when I was looking at, again, the payment space um, and looking at fiat crypto on-ramp, knowing that there was a huge need in the market for such a service. And I actually pinged uh, Ivan cold on LinkedIn on New Year's Eve. <laughs> Thank God he's a workaholic. Because right? <laughs> <laughs> he, he responded and we built the relationship with the team over the last, it was kind of eight months. Um and just seeing the, the incredible execution by that team and the growth, I mean, it's it's a great market. So we ended up investing via convertible note actually before the price round. Hmm. Um, and then we participated in the price round what as well. What was the price round? So it was $555 million at three three 3.4 billion posts. <laughs> Crypto world. What, yeah. what, what does the company do or what's sort of the thesis? 
So uh, it's uh, got both B2B and B2C. So on the B2B side, it basically provides the rails uh, to exchanges, wallets, uh, any merchant wanting to accept crypto where the starting point is a consumer having fiat. Um, so it allows you to exchange you know, dollars or pounds to Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever it is that you need. And for the merchant, it helps with the exchange, the custody, um, having all of the regulatory covered, etc. And then they also have moonpay.com, which is the consumer business where you can just go and exchange your fiat for crypto like you could um, on an, on another exchange. But the beauty is it's, you know, it's decentralized. They don't see, they don't want you to necessarily keep your money with MoonPay. They don't care which wallet you hold your, your wallet, uh, your crypto in. They're much more concerned about making it really easy to get you access to your crypto, that your KYC easily. And then whenever you interact with the MoonPay rails again, you're already known as a customer. How would you describe uh, the differences culturally, business-wise, between a U.S.-based crypto startup and a European one. I mean, are there like distinct differences that you've seen? Because uh, I, I, you know, in, in different kind of startups, I actually do. Uh, I understand that crypto is like very internationalized, and these people probably consider themselves in some ways like citizens of the world. But have you noticed distinctions between uh, approaches in the two countries or regions? <laughs> think you were right i think borders break down a lot when it comes to crypto like a lot of these uh you know companies or projects or DAOs, like you know they're working in uh, remotely like in a very much more like decentralized fashion so the concept of you being kind of european is less of a thing i would say i would say that they think about the world a lot like their u.s counterparts I guess where where the you know the borders and relevancy come in is as if there's a center of a mass and team um, in Europe, we spend a lot of time on the company building side with our portfolios, so helping them think about like team and scaling and product and go to market, etc. So that's where the location becomes relevant for us. Hmm. Were LPs sort of begging you to be investing in crypto, or they were resistant? Like, what was sort of the vibe in terms of how much LPs seem to want to hear that you know the strategy for Fund Three would involve a ton of crypto investing? I think there's a lot of appetite. Obviously, a lot of the best LPs already have exposure through other crypto funds. And, you know, those best ones are performing extremely well. So um, I think, you know, they they have a lot of appetite. They're interested in what expertise you have to cover the sector. And yeah, I'm, I think that, you know, there was a lot of, it wasn't just because we were doing crypto, obviously. I think, you know, past performance was also compelling, but um, I think there is certainly appetite for it. How competitive are these rounds right now for, for promising crypto companies? I mean, I just see every VC more or less that I've been reaching out to in the past couple of weeks. I don't cover crypto in almost any arguable way. I mean, it just has not penetrated my world that much. If it has, by the way, let me know, because I'm sure those stories would do really well if I wrote them. But um, You mean uh, the delivery yeah, world? I, yeah, I don't see it that much. I mean, I, you know, you can argue maybe somewhere on the margins, and every so often I see VCs getting into arguments online on how crypto and blockchain can revolutionize Uber, but it always comes down to, like, really, really unimpressive, you know, like, oh, insurance. It's like, well... Okay, that seems like it's a long way off. Anyway, but but how competitive are these rounds right now? Um, I mean, obviously you have a history there, so I'm sure you're a compelling investor in a lot of these companies, but is it as crazy as I imagine it is? It's a good question. Like, I don't think it's any more crazy than the craziness of Web2 deals, you know? like <laughs> They're all crazy. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. we're all crazy. The, um, there's a lot of competition in this market for you know investing in great teams and companies. Although we were actually doing the analysis of our last like five or six deals, and we didn't see any competition, so we figured out that we're either doing something very very wrong, um, or hopefully we're doing hmm. something quite right. Competition when you were making the investment. Yeah. The strongest signifier that someone's dedicated uh, to investing in crypto. When I sent you the calendar invite, by your name is like an NFT looking image on your Gmail. Is this, you yeah, have like I have a, sunglasses. I have a is that punk. a real, that's a real crypto punk? That's you a real you're not crypto a, punk. You're not a right clicker on that. that <laughs> is, uh... <laughs> could you imagine if you got found out? <laughs> I mean, I guess you could get found out quite easily. So it's a it's a, it's a dangerous gambit to pull off yeah. if you're trying. I mean, the the process is still hilarious that you you pay X for these things and then actually take a screenshot to add it right, right. <laughs> to your image in Gmail. I mean, that that experience has to improve. Have you been buying a lot of NFTs? Um, we've both bought out the fund and a little bit personally, but mainly the activity that we do is through the fund. But the fund holds. So. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. That's kind of interesting. Is that happening a lot? Do you own the coins themselves, or uh, the fund also has coins themselves? Hmm. Yeah. That's is that. I'm trying to think. Sorry, this is my ignorance and not covering the space as closely as Eric. But is there any precedence for the idea of a fund holding NFTs, like essentially like stores of value, but not necessarily, you know, like what I assume is like a living, breathing entity of a company? It's just sort of like a VC, like investing in, you know, like a Jackson Pollock or something. You just so, don't. Yeah. We debated this a lot. I mean, that was kind of the discussion when it came down to whether or not we should hold. I think the ones that we've bought, we believe like we believe in the potential to build huge communities around them. So while, you know, there's obviously going to be asset appreciated and then the NFT, it's driven by a broader movement. And I think, you know, we, especially from like a complex point of view as well like if we believe in that upside in terms of what the community could create and what the nft will give access to we should definitely be holding those at the fund like not investing in them personally if a vc puts like a fancy painting on their wall to impress founders their lps would like have exposure to that but it wouldn't I, I don't know. I, I'm just, there's sort of like a split, like obviously having a crypto fund, if you think it has to do with community, also presumably helps you get investments and like trade yeah. in crypto world. So we're definitely doing it less, like it's not a marketing. Like we right. don't it's pure, hold okay. it. Yeah. It's pure investment. Like we, don't, <laughs> we don't see this as a marketing cost. You can see how much of a believer I am. It's like trying to, <laughs> trying to dig you out and find you another reason why it makes sense to own NFTs out of the fund, but yeah, we'll see. I might be fielding a lot of LP inquiries after <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> How much of this fund is just investing in like Bored Ape Yacht Club? Which is really into artwork. But like the, the exit that comes from, you know, owning an NFT is essentially when the fund itself decides to flip it, right? I mean, sorry if I'm if I'm ignorant to the other qualities of what you get by holding you know, like a store of value like that. But I don't know. It, it, it strikes me as like an odd fit within a fund. Not not to repeat, I mean, everything that's always said, but we are uh, so early, right? So we view this in the same way, like a seed investment. Like we don't know what's going to come as a result of these communities. And if you take 
board at your club like you know there's ip in the nft like what you know what will that enable what will it give access to in the future um if you know the nft gives you entry into certain communities that others can't be a part of like um i think that's how we see the kind of potential upside like what happens if you know the next decentralized facebook is that you have to own like you know, the equivalent of the coin or an nft to be a part of it like and you don't have that access so I think we view it as quite exploratory, but an important, you know, seed strategy to to consider. Do you do you feel like you have to watch prices in real time more? You know, normally as a startup investor, you're not really worried about, you know, a market or day-to-day prices, but holding coins or NFTs, like, is there a price that they could hit where you're like, oh, I I should just sell them as like a fiduciary or you are committed enough to holding them long-term that you don't really I have to worry we, about the know, prices. Again, we had this discussion. We are long-term investors. Like in the same way that, you know, we expect our companies to exit in seven to 10 years, we will be having the same long-term outlook on anything that we buy now. I think you know, if there is continued uh, price drop or, you know, something's down like a huge amount and we don't see a long-term just in the same way, if you don't see an outcome for one of your companies, you might exit early. So that's obviously a consideration. But we're certainly not watching price movements day to day. Right, right. Our LPs might be now. <laughs> <laughs> they can see or they know what you hold. And so they can sort of, they can. Exactly. Guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, besides crypto, like what do you, what do you think are the big uh, sort of targets for the fund in terms of sectors you're looking at? Yeah, absolutely. So we will continue to do a lot in financial services. Um, so obviously, check out MoonPay. Um, we've done more uh, more to be announced in terms of embedded uh, financial services um, with software being the main play. And I think that we'll start to see like a next generation of consumer fintech as well, with crypto kind of being more of a core focus there. So I think we'll continue to spend time in that area. Alex, who you met, who joined us, as I mentioned last year, he's got a ton of consumer experience. So I'd expect more exposure there where we haven't had so much in the past. The way that we're set up at Blossom is each partner has their own kind of sector expertise and deep domain knowledge. So while we end up looking a bit more generalist from the outset, we actually individually individually spend time on just a few core themes. So for Alex, it's um, a lot around gaming, consumer mobile messaging. And then we've uh, we've made a number of uh, great investments in enterprise as well, which is led by my partner, Imran. So that's like developer tools, infrastructure, open source, security. Hmm. Explain to me, if you don't mind, this is just, again, my personal interest in the beat that I cover. Um, what's going on over there with, uh, with fast delivery? I mean, all these companies, you know, keep raising shockingly large rounds at valuations that are quite impressive or eye-popping and dubious. I mean, obviously, there seems to be traction in Europe with these sort of things. And you had you know, your own exit with, with Deja. Um, what's going on over there these days with it? It seems like they're all spreading to the US, but I don't know how big that market's going to be for them. So if there's one thing that's true about Europeans, um, we love food. Okay. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Entrepreneurs love to innovate in food because it's a very big uh, and profitable market. So if you look back to the kind of the history of great outcomes in Europe, we had Just Eat. Uh, there's like Delivery Hero. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we had Ocado back in the day. Then we had Deliveroo, etc. 
So it's a natural evolution of cutting up, you know, the food market to the last part that hasn't been innovated in. Um, and the fast food, like the 10 minute delivery was all about looking at one, like the number of kind of convenience stores um, in the UK and Berlin and Paris, etc. Um, but how kind of a lot of, in, there was a lot of inefficiency in their supply chain and whether people actually wanted to walk to their convenience store anymore um, was another factor. And then the concept of the weekly shop, like um, Ocado is like the main player in the UK, so I'll talk about them. But, you know, every week you'll spend between 70 to 120 pounds. It will revive on one day. A lot of that stuff will probably not be eaten or go off. You get all these substitutes, like the delivery slots don't make sense. So there's a lot of inefficiency in the market that these players were you know, attuned to and were trying to capture kind of some of the margin in that Um but I think that, and this is one of the challenges sometimes of the European market, you know, you can have players start in London at the same time, players in Berlin realise the same opportunity. And before you know it, you have 20 players right. attacking the market. And there weren't a lot of barriers to entry into this market either. Uh, so that's why I think it's attracted so much attention. Yeah, it also seems like growth at this point comes less from these companies deciding to set up shop in a new country, but just acquiring the local player as a way to say we now are in Berlin. So I imagine from an exit op, you know, from an exit standpoint, you know, at least they're not huge, but it's kind of a bonanza. Yeah, the exits have actually mainly been to the US players. So, you know, the likes of Flink and Gorillas, um, Getir, Zap, Deja, Wheezy. I mean, they're all homegrown. <laughs> they're real companies, Eric. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The names are so good. I mean, it's really... <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I, I can tell. I can tell you as a consumer, the, the experience is unbelievable. Like I think I order like five or six times a week from really? only Deidre and now GoPuff. I'm a very uh -huh. loyal customer. Oh, I'm sure GoPuff appreciates that. They really want Europe <laughs> to work for them. Do you? But I'm not asking you to defend their business models. But is there really a necessity to deliver things in 15 minutes? I mean, it feels like it's like a need that was just created one day by companies saying they can do that, but is there really like this been this clamoring among consumers to get things delivered in under 20 minutes? So I would agree with you that the need wasn't there for 10 to 15 minutes, but a bit like, you know how now if your Uber takes you six minutes, you're frustrated because you're used to the one to two minute arrival. Right. And if the other app is order, like offering you 10 minutes, are you going to wait 30 minutes for the other one? So because they all started to offer that quick, you couldn't move away from that. <laughs> yeah. But so the, the, really the differentiation is just speed. It's not really product. Uh, it's just there's, a matter of... There's differentiation on price. So as you gain more volume and more pricing power with who you're buying from suppliers, um, you can offer much better prices. And so uh, if you compare, for example, on Deliveroo, who offer, you know, say they offer quick groceries, actually their prices are pretty exorbitant compared to one of the other players that I just mentioned because they aren't set up in the same way. Um, like their riders will go and like pack in a supermarket rather than have the dark stores that they're um, able to negotiate kind of much better wholesale prices on. Right. But that's also a different model, right? That's taking it from the retailer versus 
you know, setting up your own dark stores. But are, do you anticipate then that it just ends up being, you know, two or three big players that can acquire the smaller ones and get enough volume that they have pricing power to make it attractive to consumers? Or is it just going to be kind of balkanized, uh, you know, just different countries uh, having their own regional player? No, I think it does end up uh, with one or two. And ultimately, I mean, we learned this through DJ, and I think this is why the acquisition made a lot of sense. It's a war on capital now, uh, and that's how it's going to end. Mm-hmm. Can they be profitable? I think they can. You know, if you look at the P&L of a supermarket, for sure. Yeah, sure. But supermarkets are not, you know, they, anyway, that's, this is, I don't want to go too far down this line. I know. I'm so tired of the delivery story. I mean, I feel like I covered it so closely with Uber and DoorDash and Postmates. <laughs> and it's like, oh, may, maybe these ones will burn a lot of money or work out well, work out poor. I don't know. I don't know if the mass public is like on the edge of their seats now. We've sort of learned the lesson that like you can spend a lot of capital sort of building up a business, figuring it out. And, and that the collapse is, you know, like, I mean, Postmates is a collapse. It's sold for $3 billion. You know what I mean? It, I don't know. There isn't really a satisfying. And then like the sprigs of the world or whatever in the U.S. where they do fail, they never got big enough that people sort of have an attachment to the brand. Anyway, this is my analysis of it as a story. And I just think... It's- I mean, the one thing that I would say is that there was overwhelming journalist interest in the space. <laughs> Yeah. I, to suggest that, <laughs> okay. I mean, the consumers haven't really tired of it yet. I mean, right. the number of times that, you know, I spoke to FD or Bloomberg, et cetera, right, right, and they're covering all of these players. I know. Yeah. It's food. It's concrete. I mean, it, you know, it's something they feel like a general and i.e. older audience might be interested in. But... You know, I I don't know. It, it, it's difficult as a story because there are some interesting characters. You know, when you looked at like the CEOs of Gorillas and even GoPuff in the US, you know, it's kind of fun backstories. But I, I, I don't know. There's an ex- expectation among some reporters of an implosion, uh, like like truly awful outcomes for some companies or selling, you know, just by, you know, the shirt off their back. And I don't, I don't, I think we may be disappointed by that. I think it may just end up being sensible exits uh, by the one player in the, you know, the players in the field that weren't able to raise as large a round as the others. Anyway, I want to, I want to go to Robin Hood. Uh, and can you yeah. tell us, I mean, clearly that's been an important uh, company sort of in your story as a venture capitalist. How, how did you first meet uh, the Robin Hood co-founders or how, yeah, tell, tell us the story in the, yeah, the absolutely. early days? The the first meeting was actually on Zoom, on a Google Meet. Um, And they pitched me and a partner that I was working with at the time at Index. And the story, I mean, they literally take you back to like 08 on how they told their girlfriends when they were at Stanford that they were going to disrupt Um, Mm E-Trade. And I mean, they had this... So when they start, when we invested in actually uh, for the first couple of years... They didn't yet have the brokerage license. So they needed to raise enough capital, which was like $4 million, to apply for the brokerage license. And in the meantime, they'd built an app for sharing stock trading ideas. Uh, And the app was really beautifully designed. So they had like a unique design philosophy, which obviously you can see now that has played out in the app. And the engagement rates for this app were like 55% like daily active to monthly active, which, you know, is incredible for financial services app 
And they had this like beautiful mix of like very clear business acumen and like product what, skill. Index. So did Index invest again when they went brokerage or? Yeah. So it, we actually uh, were trying to consider whether to invest in this kind of rolling seed that they'd done. Hmm. And the partner that I was uh, working with uh, was uh, so Jan Hammer. Oh, yeah. um, so incredible fintech investor. And it was August 2013, and he was going to park it until they got the brokerage license. And I was like, absolutely not. Like, we should be investing. And I went, I went, flew out to San Francisco when I should have been on holiday. Jan actually went on holiday. Mm. And, and I was being a dutiful associate and went out to San Fan and went out for dinner with uh, Vlad and Beju at some Korean restaurant and negotiated the, the seed at that point. So mm. we invested 500K via convertible notes. And again, then we were almost going to delay it slightly more because there were complications. The company was an LLC. There were going to be tax complications in terms of pass back to our um, investors. But we managed to convince them to keep the 500k for us until they converted to a um, B Corp. And then we doubled down in, I think it was June 2014. We led their Series A. Hmm. And uh, we thought that the valuation at the time was like astronomical for, you know, they just had the wait list. They hadn't even launched yet. And we were pretty convinced that a lot of those people on the wait list were probably Vlad and Beijing's friends. <laughs> but uh, they'd done a good job. And so, yeah, we led their Series A. Ribbit came in for a small amount alongside us. And I mean, just the growth and the execution was absolutely outstanding. Right. It wouldn't even work in Europe, right? Or there, there are sort of regulatory... So it depends on the country. Like right, right now you have trade republic. I know, we love and... to talk about Europe as a one <laughs> yeah. place. It's like, you know, it's that, much more that complicated one than that. Right, exactly. <laughs> I've been there a couple of times, you know. You get it. <laughs> <laughs> it does depend on the country. So trade republic in Germany, uh, they follow the same model, payment for order flow, which works. It doesn't work in the UK. And so uh, Robinhood considered launching Europe for a while and actually had people on the ground in the UK but couldn't get the same business model to work. There's a lot of talk like there is in the US that that's going to end in Germany too. But yeah, it's not as uh, it's not exactly the same in every country. Are there particular areas outside of crypto that you're excited about? Or at this point, do you think when we say fintech, most of the investing you're going to do will have a crypto element? to it no i think there's still a lot of opportunity in fiat as well um you know b2b payments is a vast market like bigger than consumer payments that hasn't been uh hasn't seen so much innovation over the last couple of years or few years so excited about that area i think there's a big trend towards uh removing the need for a bank like you should be able to buy financial products like you do software and I think we're going to see that shift over the next couple of years. I think there's you know more to do in lending um, as you get more data, you get better underwriting, etc. So I think that it's not just about crypto for sure. This is always the hard question to, to ask, but like, what's your philosophy on price? I mean, I, people are constantly trying to assess right now whether prices are going to come back down. I think there was like a Reuters piece that was sort of saying maybe it will, but then. I think by far the conventional wisdom is that, you know, I, I Miro, I think, raised it 17 billion fairly. Re like it's everything remains pretty eye popping. I don't know. You know, and then we think about the moon pay example, you know, that was obviously a huge round. But then you talk about getting a convertible before. 
how, how do you think about sort of maintaining price discipline as a fairly new fund when, when you sort of have to pay the market prices or what's sort of your philosophy on pricing right now? Yeah, our philosophy, and I think this is determined actually everything about how we think about the fund, how many companies we invest into, portfolio construction, um, you know, how much we invest into each company. We believe there are only going to be a finite number of outcomes um, that are going to be built in Europe each year that are going to really matter. And we want to be partners to those companies no matter what. So, you know, sometimes we might find those founders early and their need of capital is not as much as if we'd found them 12 months later. And I say need of capital as in how much do they need to scale from this point for the next 24 months. And we always fund our companies for 24 months. Um, And then it comes down to, okay, if we're going to, you know, we only make five to six investments a year. We think that's kind of the number of outcomes and that's the number of teams that we can really give the best bandwidth and support to um, as a partnership, as a what makes sense from kind of our ownership perspective, if we're going to dedicate that much time and they're going to be one of, you know, 15 companies in a portfolio. So that's how we've kind of arrived at price. Like we always find if we're debating on the margin, whether we should pay... 40 million for a company or 50 million for a company, we're not actually debating the merits of partnering with a team. Like we're debating yeah. the wrong thing. To translate this out of VC speak, you will pay whatever price, as long as they call it a series A. And even then, <laughs> I think there are exceptions. Yeah. <laughs> you, and, if, and if a growth investor wants to pay an astronomical price for our company after us, you know, <laughs> <laughs> then the rules go out the window. I mean, in terms of country, I mean, I know it's sort of, you think of it as a sort of continental sort of uh, strategy, but like what are, somebody was saying, oh, you need to write about France. Like France is really hot right now. There's a constant sort of, where is the energy at the moment? But yeah, what what is sort of interesting on a, on a country level right now? Yeah, so the core hubs have always been London, Paris, Berlin, and then to lesser extent, like Amsterdam and Stockholm, I'd say. Not Lisbon? But then, well, no, not so much. Okay. There's a lot of people in Lisbon. Sorry, sorry, Web Summit. <laughs> I can ask you about them later. I have, I have questions. But then the really fascinating thing about Europe, and this is why we're on the road so much, is like, okay, so for like 50% of the Series A's will happen in those hub cities. But then we have companies in Dublin and Tallinn and Warsaw, like a small town in Switzerland called St. Garland. Like entrepreneurs are literally building everywhere. Um and, you know, then, you know, VCs aren't on the ground in those cities like every two weeks. Um, so there is activity all over Europe. You're in Geneva right now. That's what you said before. We got exactly. Right. Yeah. Are you company hunting or is that with an LP? Or? Always company hunting. <laughs> Although I've just given away my location to God knows how many VCs. I know. That's like a state secret <laughs> in Europe. Like which, because then, then people in the know will try and back out with deal. My husband is actually banned because we have obviously a lot of friends in tech. He's banned from telling people where I am. Oh my like, God. During the week. <laughs> wow. It moves that quickly. The hot spot. Yeah. Well, this episode isn't coming out till next Tuesday or something. So Geneva may be over by then. Yeah. Sign the deal before you leave, you know? Yeah. yeah. My only last question, and this is my limited exposure to European tech that I mentioned briefly earlier was Web Summit, which I always felt was this you know, giant advertising, uh, very state, uh, you know, uh, subsidized. 
advertising effort for European tech. I, I went once in 2016. I found it to be a rather chaotic and somewhat traumatic experience <laughs> that I've brought up on the show before. What's what's your sense of how the, how much that fits into the uh, the kind of PR push for European venture capital and um, and the startup community? So it's probably tripled in size now. Oh my I god! I think the last count it was like 20,000 founders in Lisbon last year. It's insane. It's insane. Is it the biggest European tech conference or what are the, the big far. ones? Yeah. It couldn't, there could not be a larger one than that. <laughs> the the one that I love, uh, which is the, at the end of last year, is Slush in Helsinki. And that one's really well attended. Not 20,000 founders, but... Uh-huh. And last year, a lot of US VCs flew in for it. I think Ilka at Supercell really put that one on the map um, after the Supercell exit. And he throws a great party every year. But um, Web Summit is a great marketing machine generally for European tech. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they certainly fly out a lot of US journalists uh, to to moderate panels on it. And they put us up in very nice hotels. So it's well managed as far as that goes, but total chaos. And the fact that it's tripled in size is is kind of incredible to me. Do you go much? I mean, have you gone in the past? There's, there's probably, you know, a co- strong correlation between investment in European venture and number of seed deals and the size of websites. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I need to go some... I've never been. I'm sure you they'll have come. you, Eric. It's, it's a real show. It's, I mean, they put, you know, it, the, the, the main event takes place in like the largest stadium in Lisbon. It's like doing, you know, like a, a, a panel interview at like you know, a coliseum, essentially. And then they have this, like, week-long, uh, like, coda to it uh, called Founders Summit or something like that. Where Have you have you attended that yeah. as well, Ophelia? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a week-long thing where all the founders get to hang out in even nicer hotels um, and, and journalists sort of, like, slum along there. Uh, no one really wants to talk to us. Uh, but it's, uh, I've, I've, founders have told me they find value in it getting to sort of share experiences with others in, in that setting. I mean, the the um, ingenious thing that Paddy did is he took like the, you know, the two-day conference and then started adding all these side conferences where he realized that he'd get people to pay for more things. So, right. you know, you had the two days and then there was suddenly like an investor matchmaking day where founders could pay extra to meet VCs and then VCs could meet LPs. So let's have the LP matching day. <laughs> And right. then let's have like the premium conference that's its founders. Oh. And before you know it, it's a seven day bonanza that right. Paddy is arranged. It never mm. stops. And and it's so fiercely backed by the Portuguese government. I mean, the amount of red carpet rollout that they do hosting a lot of these parties in like 700 year old castles and government institutions. It's, it's truly something. I mean, uh, yeah. an, a remarkable achievement of coordination and um, yeah, favor trading. <laughs> Not that different from what uh, the governor of Miami is doing with the crypto crowd. I can't tell if the Miami government is doing all that much or not very much at all, right? It seems <laughs> like all he has to do is like the, the mayor, like tweet out something vaguely, you know, affirmative. Promising, of, yeah. Yeah, just sort of say like, oh, I'm going to take my salary in Bitcoin or, you know, how can I help? And that is enough to like win these people over. I, I found many tech Miami people are cheap dates, but maybe there's more to it that I, that I haven't seen. Cool. Well, thank you uh, so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Ophelia. This was great. Thank you. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye.
Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.